Praise the Lord. How you doing there, Wins? Good to see you. Good morning, Living Word. Great to see you here this morning. Not as big a crowd as it has been. We, we, we understand why, but it's great to be with you here on this day that the Lord has made. Uh, welcome also to those of you tuning in at home. We sure hope to see you soon. We miss you. Let me get this out of the way first, and this is for our Living Word family, so any visitors or anyone watching at home when you're not yet a part of our local church, just bear with me for a minute. We had occasion to reach out to you this week a couple times about some important information this past week, and it, uh, one email included a request for you to reply to that email. We did this, A, to make sure you got the information. We were going to call everybody, and I think we just about got everybody called who didn't reply to the email. And we're also doing that so that we can update our email list. We are finding out that several of you who should be getting them and have gotten them in the past haven't been getting them lately. We're not sure why, but we want to get to the bottom of it. If you did not get the email, uh, make sure before you leave that we have it. I got a couple notices. I'm not getting the emails. <clears throat> but you didn't tell, or they didn't tell me, what your email address is. You can scribble that on a piece of paper and drop it in the offering bucket. You can give it to Matt Kreider. He's the one who handles that mailing list. There he is on the board back there or behind the computer. And, uh, but uh, get that to us. You can email your email address to the church, to me or whoever, and we'll get, get you back on the list. But we want to get that update completed as soon as possible. Now, <coughs> excuse me, back to our regu regularly scheduled sermon. We have been in a series for several weeks now called Stay the Course, and Stay the Course is a study <clears throat> in the book of Hebrews, and in particular, its main theme, which is a warning against backsliding or falling away from the faith. And I stress again that the backsliding that we're talking about, that the author of Hebrews is talking about, that God is talking about in this letter, is not <clears throat> backsliding as we normally think of it we tend to kind of minimize the danger of backsliding. And we define backsliding as simply maybe slipping into certain habits, sinful habits, um, less, uh, maybe we're less attentive to the Word of God. Well, I haven't had a devotion time for five days. I've been backsliding and kind of poo-poo uh, the seriousness of it. And uh, the Bible is pretty clear when we read it in context, that our salvation experience does not, once and for all, make us immune to temptation. It does not eliminate acts of sin in our lives, but it is also abundantly clear, as we read, as we read the word, that sinful behavior should not be characteristic of the believer. There should be a clear difference to us and to the world that a change has taken place at the new birth. What God, through the author of Hebrews, is saying is that backsliding, allowing your life to be characterized by sinful behavior, is uh, something that will increase. It's, you don't just start allowing a little sinful behavior to creep in. It'll, it'll become more and more characteristic of you. And the big danger is that this can lead, very well can lead, to a repudiation of your faith's confession. 
This is the big question. We read a scary passage in Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to read another scary one today in Hebrews chapter 10. And when we read these passages, the question that pops into your mind as you read it on its face is, have I gotten there yet? Or do, you know, do I know somebody who's gotten there yet? What is it that will cause me to lose my salvation? Where is that line? Not only that, uh, the specifically sinful behavior that Hebrews concerns itself with, the following way that is warned against, is following away from attention to certain doctrinal truths. You read through there. He's not talking about going out to party and uh, sexual sin and all these other things that Paul certainly does address in his other letters. The thing he's warning against in the Hebrews is, you're slipping back under the law. You're repudiating your faith in Christ. We'll develop this here in a little bit. Uh, the recipients of this letter were Jewish converts to Christianity, like Paul was. And I, ha I contend uh, still, uh, I've, I've made the argument that I believe Paul did write this letter. He certainly very well could have written this letter. He had the background for it. Uh, and what he's warning against, again, is this return to Old Testament Judaism. These are Jewish believers who are now flirting with the idea of, eh, we were just fine as Jews. And the temptation was real. It's not like the Jews had it great under Roman rule. But they did have a community. They had, their, they had Judea where they were allowed to practice their religion, have their temple, uh, as long as they continued to pay their taxes and didn't stir up trouble for the Roman Empire, they could still be Jews, and they had managed to thrive somewhat as a community, as a people. Uh, and one of the things that kept them going, even under Rome's thumb, was this hope of a Messiah. We can live with this until Messiah gets here, and we don't have time to go real deep into this, but most of you know the idea they had, we usually talk about this around Easter, but the idea they had of a Messiah was somebody who was going to come, this tremendous leader, uh, another David, I think, is what they had in mind more than anything else, who's going to lead them against Rome, throw Rome off their backs, and return Judah, return Israel to its rightful place at the top of the heap, like they were in the days of David and Solomon. Jesus was not who they had in mind. This was not the leader they envisioned. But after the resurrection... Many, many Jews were convinced that he was indeed the promised Messiah. And then even more amazingly, many Gentiles began to convert to Christianity. We talked about this some time ago when we were in the book of Acts, how this was one of the big cultural hurdles the early church had to get over because the early church, the early, early church, were all Jews. And then when Gentiles began to worship this same Jesus, they're like scratching their head, but they can't... They can't uh, they didn't even have the law. They haven't even been circumcised. And they really, we're talking, we're not just talking about the people. We're talking about people like Peter who had to come to grips with the fact that God had poured out the same Holy Spirit on Gentiles as he had on them. Uh, so this was the big revelation that God did not send the Messiah into the world to elevate the Jewish people back to their former glory. He, poured, he sent his son into the world to save all of humanity, not just the Jews. And that the Jews, uh, their specialness had to do with their mission. 
their role in history was to preserve the word of God and more importantly, provide the prophesied lineage for the Messiah to come into the world, for the Messiah to be born. And kiddos, I haven't quoted a scripture yet, so you're probably not on your Bible app yet. Oh, you're taking notes. Good girl, sorry. <laughs> All right. All right. That we had a little talk before we got here today. Anyway, my apologies. Now listen, the, the church, the early church, suffered persecution. The church today is suffering persecution. Not so much here as it is the rest of the world, no matter what you think. Uh, they suffered because, listen to me, one of the reasons the early church suffered so greatly is because they were so boldly outspoken about the exclusive nature of Christ, the exclusivity of Christianity. Had a talk with uh, somebody who was in here the other day, who uh, just uh, a salesperson, sales representative, and, and she was amazing. She really was, uh, she was talking to several of us about this uh, service they offered. Uh, and we asked her, you know, where she was, where she stood, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, here, here you are in a church. Do you have a church background? She goes, and she said, I'm really more spiritual than I am religious. And so we brought the conversation back around to that. You know, when you say that, tell us what kind of church uh, she was raised in. I said, that, and I know, since you were raised in this kind of church, you've heard how you must be born again. You have heard how Jesus is... Uh, is the way of salvation, and if you have taken the step from believing that to believing maybe more broadly in religious truth, can you see that you are not, uh, can't you see that you are repudiating what Jesus said when he said, I am the way, the truth, the life, no man comes to the Father but by me. That's either the truth or it's not the truth. And you can be as broad-minded as you want. There are elements of truth in many religious systems, but they are not the truth. Jesus Christ is the truth. And this is what they were preaching. Why was this offensive? Because some people, you know, figure even if they're saying something that you disagreed with, why can't you just go on with your life? Because they saw them as a threat. There was a huge market, and this is just one example of how the Christians, the early Christians, stirred things up. There was a huge market for idols, Statues, right? Images that were sold in the marketplace. Here's an image of uh, Artemis of, or Diana, uh, these, these other gods that were being worshipped. Remember the big uh, riot in Ephesus? Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And stirring up people against Paul. And, if they, and, and these, uh, the people who uh, trafficked this sort of business saw this as a threat. Well, if too many people buy into this Christianity, I'm out of work. They're not going to be buying my statues anymore. And so they would spread these rumors. They are insulting our culture. They're insulting our heritage. And by the way, Caesar, they've got you in their sights too. Their ultimate goal is to cast down Caesar. And this isn't what the Christians were about. They weren't about disrupting Roman government. This is part of the reason Paul wrote what he wrote when he wrote to the Romans. You submit to man's authority. The kingdom that we fight for, the kingdom that we are interested in, is not of this world. But this brought some of their sufferings. This is part of what made their life tough. So now these Jewish converts are suffering along with the rest of the church, and they are flirting again with returning into Judaism because it was a little safer, it was a little more respectable, and was seen as less of a threat to the people who felt threatened. And... After all, they read the prophecies. They, they knew what Psalms said. They knew what the Old Testament scriptures said. When it said 
uh, speaking of God, you've put all things under his feet, meaning mankind's feet. And they're not seeing this. They're like, we're supposed to be living in the manifested power of this promised Messiah, and we're not seeing it. If anything, our lives are getting tougher. And Paul hits this right out of the gate. Yes, things are tough. Yes, you're not seeing certain things, but you do know what you, you, know what you do see. You see Jesus. Jesus is at the center of this letter. And, but since these Jews, they, they knew that the Christians, the Gentile Christians, and writers uh, and leaders like Paul and Peter, they still considered the Old Testament scriptures to be scripture. They knew the stuff they had believed was still true. And uh, since they had uh, really elevated and understood the writings of Moses and all these prophets, it would be safer, again, to retreat back into Judaism. Hebrews, right out of the gate, stresses that all of the laws of Moses, all of the rituals of the Mosaic law, the regulations, and even the prophecies themselves, Jesus stands above all of these. He quotes dozens of Old Testament passages in this letter to remind them that the Old Testament was written precisely to lay the groundwork for the New Testament. The Old Testament is true, but they are incomplete if they remain under the Old Covenant. And one truth that he spends a great deal of ink on is on the ministry of the high priest. The Jews revered two men above all, Abraham and Moses. Abraham, the father of the faith, faith the first one to enter into this covenant with God, and then Moses who received the law and delivered it to the people. And Hebrews demonstrates that Christ is superior to Abraham and he is superior to Moses. And then bringing up the topic of the high priest, he compares Jesus not to Aaron, the Levitical priesthood, but to Melchizedek, a priest of God, as we read in Genesis, who existed as a priest of God before, hundreds of years before, there was a priesthood established by the law. Now today, we wrap up this conversation about the priesthood by looking at it from a different angle, uh, the final sacrifice and what that means for us as believers. We are reminded in chapter 8 that the tabernacle was a copy or a shadow of the heavenly things. You remember, I'm sure, I'm sure that uh, you know, you, many of you make a, a point to read through the Bible in a year or in a certain amount of time, and so you read all of it, but you've all got your favorite parts that you go back to. And it wouldn't surprise me to know that many of you go back to Exodus and read those chapters about the directions to build the tabernacle. Do you remember all that exciting stuff about curtains and sockets and designs and skins and material? Wasn't that, isn't that great? Doesn't that just bless you when you read it? It's like 10 straight chapters of blueprints. But it's in there for a reason, isn't it? And it's in there because God was detailing some stuff. Everything that he was telling them was supposed to show them something about the true house of God. These were all just symbolic. They reflected the heavenly truths. And, uh, and, and, and uh, I keep wanting to say Paul, forgive me. The author here just keeps saying this is a pattern, this is a type of, of the truth that we see in Jesus Christ. And we looked last week at the passage that says this old covenant had a flaw. It had a fault. And it's a shocking thing to read. If, they had, if there had been no fault found in the old covenant. What? God's law is perfect. Remember where the fault was in this covenant? 
Where was it? It was with us. This was a covenant between God and man, and we, as sinful men, were utterly unable to keep it. And God knew that from the beginning. The purpose of the old covenant was to establish that we needed something other than external laws to make us holy, to make us right. Now, open your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Hebrews chapter 9, and we'll begin in verse 6. Now, when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services. But into the second part, this would be the Holy of Holies, the high priest went in alone, once a year, and not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with foods and drinks, various washings, and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of Reformation. The sacrifices, he's saying, are important for what they symbolize. And I like that, that they were imposed only until the time of the Reformation, which is the New Covenant, all right? We're not talking about the uh, you know, Luther, the Protestant Reformation. We're talking about the New Covenant. And see, when he says, when you hear people say, speaking of backsliding, when you hear people justify lazy behavior or sinful behavior by saying, eh, come on, we're not under the law anymore. This is a good verse to turn them to because when he, look at what he specified. These shadows, these types, these things that have been done away with in the new covenant aren't, he's not talking about the moral law. How many of you know thou shalt not murder is part of the law? But we're not under the law. Does that mean, do you honestly believe the new, new covenant doesn't care if we murder? Are we now allowed to have other gods before God? Is adultery okay with God? Of course not. We are still under the moral law. But he's saying these things that have to do with washings, with avoiding certain food, avoiding certain drink, those are the ritual aspects of the law. We ha and we have to be able to make a distinction between the ritual aspects of the law and the moral aspects of the law. And that's a topic for another day. We're not going to preach a whole sermon on that. But we continue here in chapter 9, verse 11. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood. He entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this reason, he is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. This is a new covenant. It is a new and better covenant built on better promises. And he goes on to write about how Moses himself, when he read the law to the people, do you remember this scene? He goes to the mountain, he receives the law, comes down, he reads it to the people, and then he 
takes blood and sprinkles it on the law, on the book. He sprinkles it on the people. He sprinkles it on the tabernacle. He sprinkles it on all the instruments of the tabernacle to demonstrate and drive home the point that without the shedding of blood, nothing can be forgiven. This is all, all the law and everything centers around the sacrifice that is necessary. Why is it necessary? Because man is sinful by nature. Verse 22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, no forgiveness of sin. But the big difference is that the high priest had to offer this symbolic sacrifice every year and, as we just read a little bit ago, he didn't just make it for the people, he had to make it for himself as well. The high priest went into the holiest of holies with the blood of an animal and applied this sacrifice for himself and for the people. Jesus, the rest of chapter 9 tells us, entered heaven with the sacrifice of his own blood, perfect blood, holy blood, offered, uh, and by this blood he put away sin once and for all because he wasn't offering that blood for himself. It was only for us. Now, let's read a couple more verses in Hebrews chapter 9, uh, 27. And as it is appointed to men to die once, as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly await for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Isn't that an interesting phrase? Who will he appear to for salvation? Those who eagerly wait for him. And this is returning again to this central idea of staying the course. Where is their attention, the people he's writing to? Where is ours? Are we killing time? Are we passing time just waiting for Jesus to get here? Are we like, well, in the meantime, I'm just going to grab, I'm going to go for the gusto, I'm going to get all the enjoyment out of life I can? Or are we eagerly awaiting his return, and are we investing the time that we have between now and then, are we investing that into the lives of others, trying to get as many people prepared for his return as possible? Now, the first part of chapter 10, and I hope you did your homework, I think I assigned you chapters 8, 9, and 10 for this week, it reiterates the difference between Christ's sacrifice and the ritual sacrifices of the law. The blood of bulls and goats served as a reminder of our sinfulness. Another way to think about that is the blood of bulls and goats offering during, offered during these sacrifices kept us conscious of our sins. Sin consciousness, right? But the sacrifice of that blood uh, covered the sin of the people. But Christ's blood cleanses us, right? Doesn't just cover us, it takes that sin away. And the manifestation of that spiritual reality is that we are being sanctified. We are in the process of becoming more and more holy. In, in uh, chapter 10, verse 14, it says, For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Right there in the same sentence, it says, he has perfected. Past tense. It's done. It is finished. That's what Jesus said, right? 
but we are being sanctified. That's present tense. We are becoming or should be becoming more and more like Jesus. Now, I'm going a little fast here, but I want to get to what I really want to get to, which is the meat of today's message, which starts here in verse 19. Chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Let me stop there for just a second. Remember what it said about the sacrifice of bulls and goats. What did it do? It, it, it maintained our sin consciousness. It was a reminder of our sin. When we go, when we enter the holy place now because of what? Because of the blood of Jesus Christ, how do we go? Do we go before him with this extreme consciousness of sin? No. We go with our hearts sprinkled with a clear conscience because that sin has been born. What we go before Jesus with, what we go before the Father with is boldness and faith in the completed work of Christ. What we should be aware of is not our sin, but the fact that he has made us righteous. And that's what enables us to do what this passage says and go boldly, right? It's good news. In verse 24, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now, it starts off with a therefore, meaning since Christ has, a, has accomplished all this, we enter that holy place, the very presence of God, which the priest could only enter the shadow of that place once a year. And we go boldly. We rejoice that the work is done. Let me return to this again, as I often do. We live with a tension. Not a tension, but a tension that we cannot, we absolutely cannot afford to be cavalier in our attitude about sin in our lives. All right? The bloody horror of the whole sacrificial system is there to remind us that our sin is abhorrent to a holy God. At the same time, we cannot let sin consciousness keep us from boldly approaching God. Back to what we said earlier in this message. The weakness of the old covenant was us. It was our sin, our inability to keep it. The old covenant was perfect, but it couldn't make us perfect. The law of God is holy, but it could not make us holy. Jesus kept his end of the covenant, and he kept it perfectly, and he washes us with his blood, and the New Testament says again and again that if we trust in that finished work of Christ, we are what? We are in him. Jesus is perfectly qualified to be in the presence of God the Father, being sinless, and we are in him. It is his blood that qualifies us, his holiness that allows God the Father to see us as holy. So the author is saying, do you see the magnitude of the difference here? 
Do you see what price was paid to get you into this new covenant? So don't let go of it. Hold fast that confession of your hope, that confession of faith you made. Don't let go of it. Cling to it. He who promised is faithful to you, so you be faithful to him. Now, he acknowledged back in chapter 1, again, we don't yet see all things under our feet. He acknowledges that holding fast to our confession can be difficult, and he's going to talk about persecution in just a little bit. I'm just trying to get you to see the context of perhaps the most famous passage in Hebrews, uh, especially lately, which is this, uh, the gathering together. People have really been uh, turning to that a lot as many people refuse to gather in this day of COVID. And again, this isn't a matter of judgment. It's just a matter of recognizing that even if people cannot gather for whatever reason right now, we should not abandon the hope of gathering together. We should never minimize the importance of gathering together. Holding fast to our confession of faith in Christ, again, can be difficult. There will be temptations to retreat into an easier safer lifestyle but there is great danger if we do so how do we avoid that how do we avoid retreating uh well number one by focusing on others when it says let us consider one another and how we can stir up love and good works and if we're going to stir one another up if we're going to encourage one another we've got to be together we've got to be with one another so we gather we assemble. Why? For the purpose of mutual encouragement, right? And uh, we're supposed to do this all the more as we draw nearer to the day of his return. Now, I had someone say to me recently uh, that since they've gotten into the habit of watching online, that they are being fed just fine at home. And this was in the context of a longer conversation. It wasn't the only thing we talked about. Uh, but I only mention it to remind us again that being part of a community, community of believers is not just about you getting fed. We should know this by now, right? It's not all about you. It's about what you bring to the table, not what you receive from the table, or not just what you receive from the table. And this is like everything else in Christianity. But then it goes right into the second really scary passage in this letter. In chapter 10, verse 26, beginning in verse 26, it says this. And this is right after, right after what we just read. I've not skipped anything. For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. But a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment, do you suppose, will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Wow. Now you look at this passage out of context and it sure looks easy to lose your salvation. Anyone who has struggled with a sinful habit feels immediately condemned. 
when we read this passage. We look, this is where we look for the line and wonder, have we crossed it? So let's look at it closely and remember the context. Now, well, one easy way, some people try to, to reduce the impact of this passage by saying, well, it doesn't say they received the truth. It says they received knowledge of the truth and then persisted in their sin. Meaning, uh, they, they heard the gospel and they may even have acknowledged that it was true, but they didn't embrace it. They never took, they never took the step of faith of confessing Jesus as Lord. They just went on with their lifestyle. And that, that kind of makes sense, except if you read on in verse 29, it talks about having been sanctified for the, by the blood. So this is pretty clearly referring to someone who has become a believer. Uh, but it also compares this person to one who rejects the law of Moses, not just transgresses the law of Moses, but rejects the law of Moses. To trample Christ underfoot and to count his blood sacrifice a common thing is to utterly forget or fail to see in the first place the difference between what Christ accomplished on the cross and the yearly sacrifice made by the Old Testament priests. You see this? It's to say, and this is the danger the Hebrew Christians were in, it's to say, Thanks for the new covenant. I appreciate that option. But I think we'll go back to the old covenant. I like the old one better. And this is the insult to the spirit of grace. And God says, I didn't give my son to die that horrible death and spill his blood to give you an option. This price was paid to purchase the only way there is to be saved. You have failed to appreciate the magnitude of Christ's sacrifice, the final sacrifice. You want to go back to the blood of bulls and goats as if those compare to the blood of God the Son? There is no more sacrifice for sin. This is what that means. If you reject this sacrifice, there is no sacrifice. No sacrifice will do you any good. Don't retreat back into the Old Testament. Don't fall back into your legalism because it will not save you. Not only that, by rejecting the gift that I gave you, by rejecting the salvation that I provided with this sacrifice, you have cut yourself off. This is hot on the heels of his admonition to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together because it is frankly easier to fall back into our old ways if we are in seclusion, if we cut ourselves off from a community of believers. Read on, and we will end with this for today, in, uh, beginning in verse 32. But recall the former days in which, after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle by both reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. 
Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. For we, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe unto the saving of the soul. This is a nice way to end this passage. What he's saying is, look, you've already done the right thing. Even when it comes to suffering, you've been there and done that. This is nothing new to you. You're just getting tired. You don't need to learn something new or accomplish something new. You just need to stay the course. You have need of what? New revelation? No, you have need of endurance. If you draw back into the old covenant, you are drawing back into what? Perdition. That means damnation, destruction. But that's not us, is it? What's he say? We are not of those who draw back into perdition. We're going to receive communion in a moment. And if you remember, when Jesus established the Lord's table, what was he doing? He was introducing the new covenant. Remember? We're going, to read that. We're going to read it here in just a minute. So my question for you, before we do that, is, why don't you stand for a second? You've been sitting a while, and if, there's, if I'm going to say anything important, this is it. I don't know how, you know what, I trust, I pray, as I've told you, before I get in the pulpit, I pray specifically every single time. That, I, that God will anoint me to speak the word clearly, accurately, boldly, and effectively. So any way that, this, any, that any of my sermons, if they ever lack boldness, if they ever lack clarity, if they ever lack accuracy, or if they have no effect, that is my failing, not God's. But I do have faith, and I trust God to speak through me. All that to say, I trust that I have made this clear to you, that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross was sufficient for your salvation. Nothing remains to be done. It is infinitely superior to the blood of bulls and goats, to the repeated sacrifices. It is a once and for all sacrifice for everybody who believes. Then nothing remains to be done, but you must believe. When he talks about hold fast to your confession of hope, he's going back to a specific confession. The confession unto salvation, the confession of lordship, that uh, if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And it is that moment of confession, the new birth, salvation, that you enter into that covenant. A covenant is a contract. It's an agreement. It's built on promises, just like if you were, hey, we signed this contract. You come to work for us for five years, you're going to make this much, and you're going to get these benefits. But you have to hold up your end. The beauty about this covenant, the new covenant, is Jesus held up our end. Our end is already complete. It's done. We get in on this contract just because we are in Christ, and we get in Christ by confessing our faith in him. If you have not personally done that, I'd like to offer you the opportunity to do it today. 
I, I just, it's, it's a simple statement of belief. I do believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. I believe he died and that, it, and that his death was necessary for my salvation. And I receive that sacrifice for me. And I declare that he is my Lord. That's salvation. And when he comes, he offers the Holy Spirit to be baptized in the Holy Ghost and power to do the things that please him. But it's not about signing up a contract and promising to do a bunch of stuff. He becomes your Lord. He'll make that clear to you. And he'll even put the desire in your heart to do those things. It starts with a confession of hope and salvation. Does anybody want to make that decision today? Say, Scott, I boldly confess I've never made that decision, but I need to make it now. Does anybody need to be saved, need to be born again today? Listen. I don't see any hands, and I take it as good news because I believe, I think that means most of you have already made this decision. But go back to the scary part. If you know the truth and you reject the truth, you are in danger. You are teetering on the edge of perdition if you say, I believe, I'm just not ready. That's not the same person, that's not the, quite the same thing as saying, I have believed and trusted and I've rejected but you are kind of walking the same razor blade. What, what, uh, what has already been said many times just in this letter is, today, if you will hear his voice, today, today, today. Does anybody want to make that decision today? All right, praise the Lord. If you have made that decision, and you can be seated now for a minute, if you're already confident that you are a believer, we'd like you to join us in communion. Uh, if you didn't get any of the communion elements on the way in, you can raise your hand, they'll deliver them to you. We celebrate what we call open communion here at Living Word, meaning that you do not have to be a member of Living Word Family Church to receive communion with us. You simply have to be a member of the family of God. If you are a Christian, this moment is for you. If you have not made that decision, then please respect the ordinance as Christ offered it. If you have not yet embraced the new covenant, this moment isn't for you. We're still glad you're here. Just don't partake with us. And let's all uh, wait and we will partake together. i give you a second. Sometimes that top layer is a little difficult to separate. But once you've got the uh, wafer out, I'm going to read... Uh, 1 Corinthians. If I can get in there. Oh, come on. First Corinthians chapter eleven. Probably get there before I will. beginning in verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. There's that reference again to this eager awaiting his return. We remember his broken body. We remember his shed blood. And we remember his promise to return. All of this is wrapped up in the celebration of the Lord's table. So let's take the bread. And Heavenly Father, we thank you for the broken body of Jesus Christ. We thank you for giving your son, Jesus. We thank you, God the Son, for giving yourself to be broken for us, to provide for us, to provide healing and wholeness for us by being broken yourself. We, by faith, celebrate the fact that we are a part of your body today and we are made whole by the sacrifice of your body for us. And we receive that wholeness. We receive that healing. In Jesus' name, amen. Take the cup. Lord God, we thank you for the shed blood of Jesus Christ, your son. Lord Jesus, we thank you for being our mediator, our high priest, the mediator of a new and better covenant. Thank you for the better promises it is built on. Thank you for reminding us that there is no sacrifice apart from the one that was made, the final sacrifice of your death and shed blood on the cross. And that because we are in you, we are inheritors of those promises. We are righteous. We are holy. Help us to, to regularly meditate on the complete nature of your work so that we can come boldly before the throne of God to find grace and help in time of need. Let us never forget that it doesn't depend on our efforts, but that it has all been done through the blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the cup in Jesus' name. Praise the Lord. Aren't you thankful that you are a New Testament believer? We're going to be looking next week at some Old Testament believers. Legends in the Hall of Faith. And many examples. And the upshot of it is and we're in a better place than they are. All the things that they did and accomplished and the stories we read are just, and there's not a single hero that we read about who wouldn't trade places with us here today. That's what we're going to read next week. Uh, I'm going to dismiss you in a moment after we pray over the offering. Hold on to your, just deposit this. There should be a trash receptacle out there. There are also uh, baskets out there for, to receive your offering. If you need an envelope, uh, wave your hand around. Usher might still be able to get you one. That's if you're giving cash, checks. I know most, a lot of you anyway are doing that on your way in. Uh, checks get made out to Living Word Family Church or simply LWFC. Uh, this, isn't, this isn't a uh, pay the bills time, is it? This is part of our worship. We are not uh, taking a collection. We are worshiping the Lord with our giving. This is the biblical response to God's blessing 
on us materially. He has promised to meet all of our needs. Not all of our needs except our financial needs. He didn't say, whatever you sow, you'll reap, except when it comes to money. It includes it. Money is a small thing in the grand scheme of things, and yet we are measured many times in Scripture by how obedient we are with our finances. This goes Old Testament and New Testament. And what's God say? It's all mine, and I blessed you abundantly. Your proper expression of appreciation for that is to return a tithe back to me. You're faithful in the tithe. You're faithful in offerings over and above the tithe. I, you will never lose, God said. You are not going to outgive me. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap. What's the law of sowing and reaping? First you sow, then you reap. What do you reap? You reap what you sow. When do you reap it? After you sow. What do you reap? What you sow, right? One other principle, how much do you reap? More than you sow. You reap after you sow. You reap what you sow. You reap more than you sow. Are you ready to sow into the kingdom of God right now? I am. Heavenly Father, thank you again. Thank you for everything. Thank you for the service. Thank you for every way you've spoken to us and every seed that's been planted into us. We, we pray, Lord, that we are found good ground today and that that seed will take root and bear fruit in our lives for your glory. And now, as always, Lord, we count it a privilege to give into the work of your kingdom. We are well aware that everything we have, we have because of your grace and your love toward us. And it's our uh, honor and we rejoice in the opportunity to return that portion back to you, uh, not just out of obedience, but, Lord, we do it joyfully. We do it cheerfully, but we also do it expectantly, Lord, believing your promise that as we bring the tithe into the storehouse, you will open up the windows of heaven and pour out blessing there's not room enough to contain. We receive it by faith, Lord, so that we can continue to be a blessing, so that we can give and give again as part of our expression of living the gospel and preaching the gospel. And you be glorified in this, our worship of giving. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you give. And please uh, remain where you're at until you are dismissed by the ushers.